the Department of Nutrition at the Ewing School of Global Public Health and the Director of the Center for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at UNC Chapel Hill. She has over 20 years of experience conducting nutrition and physical activity research aimed at obesity and chronic disease prevention among underserved populations. Uh, I think it's also really interesting that Dr. Ammerman is currently on the uh, statewide North Carolina Sustainable Local Food Advisory Council and on the National IOM Task Force addressing policy to prevent early childhood obesity. Dr. Ammerman is going to be talking today about sustainable food systems and public health, access, and health disparities. Before she begins, I will note there's a seat here, here, and there if people want to go ahead and find a seat. Um, but without further ado, we'll turn it over to Dr. Ammerman. Great. Well, it's nice being in the neighboring Carolina. Whenever I hear something mentioned about the Carolina this or that, I Often I put on my CV and when I get introduced in North Carolina, you know there's a lot of basketball going on in North Carolina. And um, I did my undergraduate at Duke and I, I played on the women's basketball team there. That was my <laughs> claim to fame. That was before anybody ever cared about women's basketball. But um, so um, depending on which school I'm talking at, that gets brought up with mixed reviews. <laughs> uh, but I have three boys who are all diehard Tar Heel fans and they're kind of proud of the fact their mom played basketball but not on the dark side so they just say that I played for the ACC so that's how they handle that so you notice the Carolina blue here um, so I think a lot of people start with this whole question of what is local food and I thought I'd say I don't know if for your state fair do you usually have the food of the year the kind of really crazy food like fried Twinkies and things like that okay so anybody know what this is I don't know if it made it to South Carolina. Uh, well, it's more than that. Crispy cheese, bacon cheeseburgers, I think. So crispy cream bacon cheeseburgers. So, um, yeah. And I thought this was a great comment. A perfect marriage of sweet and savory. So, so getting a little silly here, but you could think about local. Um, we just got a new Krispy Kreme to Chapel Hill. Now, I s you guys have a huge one, right? Did I see yeah. a big one of those Rollum factories, right? So we got a smaller version. So could we say that's local? Um, also, a big thing for us is all the big hog farms. We have Smithfield. It's, I think it's the biggest one possibly in the world. Um, but our, when I work with our dining services, they're always trying to claim that hogs or pigs that come from Smithfield are local. And they are, in a sense. But uh, when it comes to sustainability, that's another issue. So, so what do we mean by local? There's, in North Carolina, we have got to be NC. You may have something similar that your ag department does. There's an effort, 10% local campaign, trying to get people to buy at least 10% of their stuff, their food from um, local sources. Um, people define different radiuses, sometimes the notion of food shed, kind of like a watershed, a kind of a more logical geographic rather than just divided by states. And then this question of whether uh, something like Smithfield Farms would qualify. Um, what's sustainable? I think we're moving away from this notion that it has to be organic. A lot of farmers now are finding, small farmers, that it, uh, it's very expensive and um, difficult to become certified as organic. So many are using kind of um, sustainable practices, not necessarily um, going all the way to organic certification. And then you've heard that you know Walmart um, has organic food, but some of it has been shipped from California, so it may be sustainable, it may not be. 
Uh, but now they're trying to focus more on local food, so all kinds of different dynamics there. I just stumbled across this when I was looking for sustainable things. I think it says sustainable Coke or something to that effect. I don't know exactly what that means. <laughs> um, Organic. Okay. Uh, <laughs> organically grown sugar. Uh, very local. This is the garden in my front yard that's just big enough to grow a little bit of lettuce. And just for fun, this is our statistician um, who's from Turkey, actually, and he grew this pineapple in his office window. Um, it was perfect. No blemishes. We ate it. It was really wonderful. It took two years. Had to be really patient. But it was extremely local, right? <laughs> So, but this whole local food thing, what about equity? You know, we know there's a lot of interest in all of this and there's a lot of kind of yuppie farmers or hippie farmers and a lot of wealthier Americans. We talk about, I don't know if you know, that Carborough is a small town right next to Chapel Hill and there's a farmer's market there that caters to all of us Chapel Hill folks. And um, anybody want to guess how much I played for a 25 pound turkey for Thanksgiving? $70. $150. I don't think I'll be doing that again. <laughs> we call that the Carborough effect. So prices are much higher there, um, but there's a demand for it, and the supply is actually not that great. So um, if I were a farmer, I'd charge higher prices too. But we're doing work in other parts of the state where the prices at the farmer's markets are often fairly comparable to grocery stores, so it's not always that way. But I think there is a legitimate question of whether this whole local food thing is kind of boutique, overpriced, only catering to, uh, and will it really address food deserts, benefit rural communities, reverse the trend in farm loss? All these three things are what I'm working on and hoping that we can do, but I think we have a ways to get there. So linking this with public health, which is of course my area of interest, you know, these three really big areas of concern, economic health disparities, environmental degradation, and obesity, all really are tied pretty closely to um, our current food system. So now we, a little bit of a pun here in terms of climate change, we're, um, you know, we are, I think, getting to a tipping point. I think um, having an organic garden on the White House lawn certainly didn't hurt. Um, so I think there's a lot of, you know, all the Michael Pollan books, all the Food Inc. movies and those things. So I think there's a lot of momentum in the direction of thinking about local sustainable food systems. Um, I'm, as you can probably see, I'm going to race through these slides pretty quickly. I have a whole lot of them, and I'm going to hit high points, maybe not lots of detail, and then we can come back to things you might be more interested in. Um, so that's why I'm going to move pretty quickly. Um, so I think these are things you're probably familiar with in terms of public health concerns, food insecurity, high obesity. Uh, does everybody know the food desert concept of just, um, this is the idea in particularly urban areas, but it's a problem in rural as well where um, people have done some really interesting GIS, GPS mapping to show that especially in lower income neighborhoods, there's very high density of fast food and liquor stores and very low density of grocery stores that sell um, any sort of fresh produce. So it, the idea being that there's really not, some people call this swamps and food swamps and food deserts, but lots of access to stuff that's not particularly health promoting and not very good access to uh, food that is. We have, you know, some people call it a perfect storm when it comes to obesity that we have enormous access to um, low nutrient, high energy dense food and very little um, and, and decreasing opportunity to um, be physically active. You guys are mostly on the younger side, but when I talk to audiences of more of my peers, I ask how many people walked to school when you were, Steve's probably done this in his talks. Uh, how many of you walked to school when you were a kid? Let's go ahead and try that. Okay, how many of you have children who walked to school? 
One, yay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just another way that we are um, just uh, surrounded by um, limited opportunities for activity and lots of opportunities for, for eating. Uh, another example I use sometimes, I got into the, my son's 91 tempo with a cup of coffee um, and looked around for a place to put it, and there was no place in the whole car to hold a cup, and I was kind of surprised. And then later our family bought a, a Honda, and there were nine places to put cups. And then we bought a minivan a couple of places later, and the first thing they proudly pointed out was how there were 15 places in the car. That you, and they all kind of expand so that you can put the big gulp thing in them. And people have told me, I haven't seen this, but that you can buy snack foods in cup sizes kind of purposely so that you can put it in the car so you can have both beverage and food. So one thing that's kind of interesting about the U.S., this is the book, What the World Eats. If anybody, it's a really interesting uh, book that goes through like a week um, of families all across the world um, and the food that they eat. It turns out that the one here from the U.S. is from North Carolina, um, and then the other one is from France. People seem to find a lot of wine bottles in the France one, but I, some of those are water, I think. Um, but we are accustomed in the U.S., to spending very little of our disposable income on food. We spend probably less than almost any other country in the world. Of course, we have high incomes, but we um, generally um, seem to feel like it's not um, important to spend a lot of money on food, that that's something we should be able to get by cheaply. So that has a big impact on what we can do in terms of some of these changes in the food system. And I think this is probably not new to most of you. Traditional agriculture, of course, is very dependent on fossil fuels, both pesticides and fertilizers. Uh, and then, of course, transport. I guess I can't quiz you about the food miles thing. You may have heard this, that the estimates are that the average kind of distance from farm to table is about 1,500 miles. It seems kind of incredible, but if you think if you have a kiwi from New Zealand, that kind of jacks it up there pretty quickly. So. Um, and, of course, all the adverse impacts that this can have, like in the Gulf of Mexico, all the runoff down the Mississippi River results in um, various um, damage to the, the Gulf um, kind of marine uh, life there that is all related to some of the farm runoff from further up. And then, of course, with sprawl, you have a lot of encroachment on rural communities, loss of agricultural land. So some of the impact, I don't know where South Carolina ranks, but North Carolina is tied for the most rapid uh, rate of farm loss. Probably here is the case, too, that the average age of farmers is way up there in terms of years. Um, there's all the concerns with development and the land values and more and more difficulty actually acquiring farmland. We have very much concentration of farmland into, into you know, the big, the really big agribusiness. Um, I mentioned this notion of cheap food, and many farmers now have to have another source of income. North Carolina, in particular, has got a challenge of with the transition out of tobacco. Now that the government's no longer supplementing tobacco, that used to be a way that small farmers could survive because they had that supplement. So now um, that's been phased out, and so people are having to figure out if they can make it in agriculture. So one hope is this local food movement might allow people to um, still survive on small farms that used to grow tobacco. So this kind of new notion is um, looking at more of an integrated system, um, what some people are calling farm to fork, um, thinking about it all the way from where it's produced, how it's packaged and distributed. Um, again, this transition from tobacco um, 
and the notion of broad partnerships. We were in a, an exciting meeting this morning that um, Darcy and others organized that brought together a lot of people who hadn't really spent much time, several people in the room are here, who hadn't met together very often. I think there's a lot of interest in, in really joining forces and trying to move this forward. You know, it, it requires people from many different disciplines, planners, nutritionists, horticulturalists, um, uh, community um, legislators, um, so that you can make all of these things work. So some of the work that we've been doing, um, there's a guy in our school of government who wrote this book called Small Towns, Big Ideas, and I went to a presentation that he gave about that. Um, it was looking at kind of transition in rural areas, uh, but it had nothing to do with agriculture, and I was surprised by that, and it turned out they defined the town based on a small kind of radius around it, and so they didn't really include the agricultural perspective. So I convinced him to work with me on trying to think about this more broadly in terms of the rural, the agricultural area. So we're trying to look at case studies um, as to what works, what doesn't. Some people said, well, as long as your farm is within 100 miles of Chapel Hill, you're good. <laughs> but that's not really a sustainable model. Um, and then we have some anthropologists who are looking at uh, some other things related to local food clusters, how the production processing marketing kind of fits together. Um, we did a documentary studies course in collaboration with Duke. Um, working, can't see him too well, but Charlie Thompson down here is a documentary filmmaker uh, who's, who actually was a farmer for nine years as well, and so he brought a lot to the course as well. Then in terms of the environmental impacts, um, I don't think, I think you have a lot of chicken farms here, maybe large chicken and turkey farms. If you drive by them, you can probably smell them from far away. Uh, same thing with the hog farms. We have a very high concentration of that in North Carolina, and of course there's a lot of concerns related to antibiotic use and whether that's contributing to the antibiotic resistance going on. We're working with one um, postdoc who's looking at the, the MRSA, the resistant bacterial strain, um, to kind of compare that because there's been concerns about that developing um, among people working in the hog farm industry. When I first got some of the funding to work on these um, ideas, people immediately thought that I was going to study whether local food was more nutritious than food from um, farther away. And while that's kind of an interesting idea, you know, so much of that depends on, on transportation, um, storage, you know, probably a tomato ripened fresh nearby is going to have more vitamin C than one that was picked green and shipped across the country. Uh, but when you think about the challenges we face as a country when it comes to nutrition, a little bit less vitamin C is not really where our issues are. So to me, that's much less relevant than whether um, reconnecting people with their food supply may have more of a, uh, an impact on um, how they um, purchase food and, and say how they engage children and families with, um, with food consumption. So um, are you all familiar with the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Survey, BRFIS sometimes we call it? Um, North Carolina, we have a version of that, that where we call back for families with children to ask about them. And for a mere $1,000 a question, you can buy questions. It sounds a little crazy, but think of all that you get for that. You know, you get this, this um, pretty sophisticated sampling strategy, and then you get to compare it to all the other data. So we bought a few questions, um, and we ask people um, uh, whether they were likely to buy food from local sources, and you see here what they reported in terms of their frequency. Um, it was not 
uh, terribly high frequency. We did find that it was not limited to higher income white families. Um, it was broader than, than we thought. Um, and then this last thing, even controlling for education and income, we found that um, those who kind of preferentially bought more local food, that their children seemed to eat more fruits and vegetables. So that's one little hint that there may be some behavioral change going on with uh, purchasing local food. We've been doing some work with um, school gardens. Um, this is the charter school that serves mostly lower income kids, and they have a pretty strong um, garden-based program. And we were looking at things like science, knowledge, entrepreneurial skills, leadership development, and seeing some improvement in their attitudes and, and behaviors around fruits and vegetables being engaged in that. And there's kind of a growing body of evidence that kids who are exposed to growing food and preparing it um, are more likely to then eat um, that food. Another big area that we're just kind of touching on is economic development. Um, I was talking about um, how we're trying to look at farmers markets around the state and other places to see what the sort of um, economic systems are, what they're charging relative to other retailers. Um, and again, our findings so far, although we still have more analysis to do there, that um, they're not as disparate as you might think given the Carborough effect. Um, we're also interested in learning more, but we need some more economists to help with this in terms of looking at some of the spin-off um, multiplier effects of buying local food and how that might tie into local distributors and marketers. And there's a number of ways that that can benefit the local economy. We teamed up with some guys with what's called the Renaissance, um, what is that, Renci, um, computer network. Anyway, these are computer jocks. And they're working with us to develop a GIS tool that would help position a farmer's market for best return on investment. You know, places like Walmart and probably most fast food restaurants do this. You know, they figured out what the flow of consumers is, who, you know, what the price points might be in terms of different foods, and then figure out um, where to locate that. So we're, we're getting close, but we still don't have a a jazzy system to say exactly where a farmer's market needs to be. You can see they use a lot of kind of complex modeling for that. And then looking at some policy um, efforts, um, I think Darcy mentioned that we were able to get going this uh, legislative mandate for sustainable local food. Um, actually, it's called the Advisory Council. It was kind of changed at the last minute. I think people felt policy sounded a little too powerful. So we're an advisory council. Um, and then, um, well, this is probably mostly relevant for people in nutrition, but there's SNAP is the new word for food stamps, and there's a, a way of pulling down funding from USDA for SNAP education. And the this is just a little lesson in influencing your legislature. We showed them these numbers. Um, this is all kind of changing now because of some of the federal legislation, but um, California was getting $41 and a bit more per capita funding for every food stamp recipient, whereas North Carolina was getting $1.13. That's a huge discrepancy. That's money being left on the table, essentially, that could be used to work with lower-income populations on nutrition education. So by presenting this to our obesity task force, and this was actually a student's master's paper, we were able to get them to really push the Department of Social Services to, to open up this opportunity further. We had some people from California call in to the legislative session to try to educate us. 
Um, you saw some of the other things I had mentioned earlier about some local food economy efforts. Um, this Breeze farm here is a farm incubator trying to give small uh, scale farmers who maybe not don't have their own land the opportunity to see if they can make it at least for a season um, with um, some limited access to farmland and then some help with um, basic farming strategies and access to markets. There's the Carbo Farmers Market. I mentioned the 10% campaign. This is a little bit more on that. Um, this was funded through one of our tobacco settlement funds. Um, I don't know what happens in South Carolina. It's highly variable with states as to whether they use that money. This is the money that was um, that the tobacco companies put forward to settle in return for not getting as many lawsuits as they would have otherwise. It was supposed to go to um, helping people to stop smoking uh, or other health-related issues or to support <coughs> former tobacco farmers who are, you know, struggling in terms of the transition. So, so this was kind of pitched, I guess, in both ways in that um, local farms um, selling produce um, can benefit from this and then uh, they're the, what we believe are some health benefits as well. And so it's kind of a nice little system where it's all web-based and every Sunday you get a prompt to ask you um, how much you spent on local food and then it calculates that based on what you input earlier uh, as to your total um, uh, food bill and then calculates what percent you're doing and aiming for 10%. And then this is a, an effort to use um, SNAP or food stamps in farmers markets. Um, the term electronic benefits transfer, that's the current use. So now you can like swipe a credit card for food stamps. Um, but it's complicated for farmers markets who don't usually have a lot of good access to electricity and, um, and tie into the internet. So there's some mobile systems now and also you don't want to have to have every farmer buying one of these swiper machines. So the way people have done it is we call these truck bucks. Um, so they're kind of wooden coins that can be, so you swipe your car. You can also here do it with credit and debit as well and then you use your wooden coins to buy the food and then the farmers um, cash those in for real money. So that's one way to get around that. This is a Carolina campus community garden. I understand you have some community gardens and I actually saw your um, green quad where you have the garden going on, which is really nice to see. This was an effort to try to help lower wage workers who were really getting hit hard by the economic times. So the garden is really a collective effort and then the food goes to um, is distributed uh, at various points to housekeepers and other um, workers. So this was the field initially. The university gave us the land. I mentioned to some folks earlier, they, they want us to think of this as temporary in case they want to build something on this. <laughs> but we're hoping it'll look so beautiful they'll never want to do that. Um, here's some of our work days. Um, I learned about lasagna beds. Has anybody done a lasagna bed before? Okay, great. Um, so we're trying to make this an educational opportunity as well and encourage people to, there's a big lasagna bed. So it's basically sort of refuse from the grocery stores, things that aren't really composted yet, but you know, lettuce and stuff that's too far gone to sell certainly and then layered with newspaper. And then we got a contribution of an irrigation system. People see somebody in their surgical greens <laughs> coming out. And then did a lot of bamboo trellising um, for things to grow up. It's growing up bigger and bigger. We have a 
this is Claire, our garden manager, who's been a really critical uh, point to this. That we were talking earlier about some community gardens are kind of separate plots that people each garden separately. And this one is being handled as one large effort. And it's really critical that we have her there to kind of coordinate that and direct people's efforts. Here's some of the harvesting and some of the results. And then this is one of the distribution sites. Usually at 7 a.m. when the shifts are changing for the housekeepers. And many of the housekeepers are from Burma. And I was mentioning we have some interesting cultural findings here and that they like their okra really big, whereas most of us like it small. Uh, so different approaches. Um, jumping around to some other projects, there's a very s small rural county up in um, the northern part of the state called Warren County, and we've been um, working with an African-American church there. This is Reverend Kearney there in the tie. This was after a church service. He doesn't usually wear a tie in the garden. Um, they had already cleared out an acre of land. They actually have 50 acres with their church because it's a very rural church. It, it seems like it's some unusual thing, but it's, it, to have that much land is not that unusual in a very rural area. Um, so we worked with them together on a grant proposal to um, use some of that garden space. And one project we're doing with them, we're calling Quick Chef. Um, has anybody heard of dream dinners? Is that a concept that, or entrees made easy? Um, so it's this kind of storefront thing. Uh, I think they're still doing okay. There were about four or five of these companies and they're, um, what do you call it when there's multiple ones spread around, franchises. And they generally, uh, because they're a large franchise, they usually have trucks delivering kind of the, the basic food they use, which they prep ahead of time. They're kind of marketed to middle to upper middle class housewives, I think, for the most part, who want to have home-cooked meals or something close to it, but don't really <coughs> feel like they have time to do it. So if you go to one of these places, you, you've got, they've got the um, recipes, they've got the food, partially prepped and then you just assemble it, kind of season it the way you want it to and then you take home, obviously you pay for it as well, um, you know, meals for a week and stick it in your freezer and so you've got all this food. So we thought, well, that's kind of a neat concept. Could we um, tweak that a little bit and make it something that could teach more cooking skills and could m and maybe use um, local food maybe food that's harder to sell, like some of the livestock farmers find it hard to move some of the lower cuts of meat that would be fine, say in stir fry or something like that. And when there's a glut, you know, everybody loves farm fresh tomatoes, but when you're at the peak of the season, there's only so many tomatoes that you can eat. So the price tends to come down then as well. So if we could be really nimble with the recipes and, and help people learn more how to cook, um, that we might... Um, see some benefits in terms of um, nutritional health. So jumping again a little bit, um, the technique of photo voice, many people are familiar with that, where you give people cameras, and it's been used for sort of social change purposes over the years, but you can also use it for data collection, qualitative data collection. And we were trying to look at this issue of land loss among African-American farmers. Um, so. Uh, this was funded by our poverty center at UNC, and it ended up becoming multiple student efforts um, projects. Um, we started with a group of middle-aged to older farmers, and they de decided on their own prompt. You, you know, you have to have something that sort of drives what you're going to take pictures about. So they decided they would take, they assigned themselves the, the idea, um, given all the hardships in farming, why do we continue to do what we're doing now? And so um, that was a really kind of interesting way to frame that, I thought. So they went out and took pictures, brought it back, and then ended up 
spinning off a group of younger farmers who we asked to do the same thing. And from this first group of farmers, this was one of the pictures. That's actually a pickup truck. It, the perspective is sort of funny. It looks like it goes on forever. <laughs> and the little boy here. And um, just highlight a couple things. You know, obviously focusing on the younger generation, um, saying that farm life is better for him. If we can hold them on the land, maybe one day they can make a profit. The next generation, that's why we continue to do what we do. Again, that theme. If we were to have a thriving produce business, we could have uh, brought some of the younger kids into this kind of operation. So for 20 years in this community, we have had very little impact on a generation of youth. And previously, we had a big impact. So it's really kind of a sad commentary, I think, on where people feel that farming is going, that they can engage the youth. That, and same time they're worried a lot about what youth are doing. In fact, even as the rural community where we're working, there's a lot of concern about gang um, activity and things like that. So we tried to take some of the leads. Actually, these are some of the additional recommendations they came up with. Raising awareness, um, promoting collective kind of approaches, using the church as a venue, um, enlisting youth. So we tried to build on that and we um, wrote a grant with the Reverend Kearney, who was the guy in the necktie in the garden. Um, he actually approached us about this. This was done through our CTSA clinical translate. Do you guys have one of those here? Clinical Translational Science Award. It's um, a lot of, comes through medical schools and they tend to be very kind of clinically oriented, but uh, the intention is that it be much broader research and this was one of the first attempts through our university where uh, this was really a true community collaboration. So the idea of moving down through, these are the aims of the research project to really test whether or not um, this garden approach could actually address some of the issues related to chronic disease. I think the Reverend Kearney was concerned that he saw, you know, a lot of the skills of agriculture and nutrition kind of slipping away with the generations and that hoped that gardening might keep that in place. Um, and then down here in the fourth one is looking at whether or not um, this could actually serve as something of an incubator because of their large amount of property for, um, to support new and transitioning farmers. So I already mentioned that as an early community engagement process, looking at health and wellness theology. You know, there's a lot of theological perspectives on taking care of your own health, tending the earth, those kinds of things that translate well with churches. Just a few pictures of, see, we were even able to engage some of the teenagers who you might not expect to want to do this. So I'll tell you more about another project specifically working with them. There are some opportunities for increased physical activity. And this notion of kind of passing down knowledge. We talked about this some um, with earlier groups today. Of, of the, It's a nice way of kind of honoring the older folks in the community who really do have some of these skills that are really going to be lost if we're not going to have an opportunity to pass those down. So that's a nice opportunity for community gardens as well to really bring in people who know how to garden still and can teach um, younger folks. Now, we do have some interesting challenges in that the older Farmers really like to get on their tractors and plow things up, and <laughs> the, the newer systems are more for um, less disruption. Um, what's the term? Well, permaculture, or um, there's another word for um, not plowing as much. No-till, no -till. yes, thank you. Um, 
So apparently, the I think one group had planted some seeds in some of the rows, and the other guys didn't realize that, and they went through and plowed them all out. <laughs> so and they also don't believe in uh, raised beds. They kind of think that's kind of the wimpy way out. Cause, <laughs> so anyway, I mean, it's all um, very amicable, but it, it takes some um, strategy in how to bring those together. Uh, we worked very closely with the Cooperative Extension in terms of some of the strategies for, again, raised beds, cold frames, other things. Um, and then th this is spun off a grant uh, from NIH that we call Faith Farming in the Future. Uh, it's an outgrowth of this. Uh, and we have now are using four churches, and we're using a randomized controlled trial approach of two churches first and then a delayed intervention control so that the everybody gets the intervention eventually, but um, that um, they kind of do it in sequence. This is very dense, but I'll just run through it very quickly. The idea is to work with youth initially to kind of do an environmental community assessment about what some of the needs are in their community related to agriculture, and then use that to identify some critical community challenges. Um, we're kind of basing this after the SEEDS model, which mentioned it's in Durham where they employ um, inner city youth to grow food and then sell at the farmer's market. So we are actually employing the youth here and paying them does a lot in terms of getting them engaged. Um, we're hoping that, you know, we, we realize it's not sustainable that, you know, we could continue paying them, but we think there are a number of opportunities that small businesses could spin out of this, and there could be entrepreneurial opportunities related to farm-to-school activity and other things, or just also to get them past the barriers that, that agriculture is something that they're trying to run away from. And as you could imagine, in African-American communities with a long history of agriculture that goes all the way back to slavery, and, you know, this is something that people have been trying to get away from for a long time. So we're trying to kind of find that middle ground of not missing the opportunity that I think is going to be there with this whole local food switch where I think people could really make a living. The, the one place where the farmers are doing well is in the very small farms. There's actually an increased number because they're the ones who are selling at farmers markets and that kind of thing. So if we can make the distribution systems work, I think it does offer possible rejuvenation for some of the very rural communities that are getting hit so hard. Like in North Carolina, we started out in one project studying worksite wellness for women in blue-collar worksites, and uh, those were textile mills and other plants, and most of those have closed down or moved overseas. So, um, you know, the economies are really devastated, and most kids leave as soon as they can, and until they can do that, they drive to the nearest big town to work in a fast food restaurant. So the, the options are not great as they are, so if we can make farming a more viable option, it may be that we could really offer something to these communities. One farmer was telling me the, kind of his sadness at the demise of tobacco because it used to really bring the community together because if you know much about tobacco farming, there's a lot of kind of collective work that has to be done. Like when you string up the tobacco and put it in the barns, it really requires a lot of people working together and they feel like they've really lost a lot of that kind of community spirit. So I think I've already mentioned the focus on youth jobs training and trying to prove some improve kind of attitudes and feelings about fruits and vegetables as being a good thing to eat. So one way we're trying to measure all of this, when I was saying that my focus is not on whether local food has more nutrients in it, uh, what I do think this can help us learn is whether, for lack of a better term, we've, we've come up with the term food alienation, which is kind of this idea that we're very removed from the source of our food, from the notion of seasons. 
um, from the fact that fruits and vegetables can be enjoyable, <laughs> that not everything has to come in a package or from a fast food restaurant. So we've developed a series of measures and we've been testing them um, in some of these studies. And these are a few of these things, um, even related to grocery shopping, that it's something that, you know, how people feel about that, what people think about the history of gardening, whether it's something kind of old school. Um, or something that would appeal to people. What about cooking? Cooking is kind of, there have been some articles recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. There's a guy named David Ludwig from somewhere in Boston. I can't remember if it's Harvard, but he does a lot of work with obesity um, and diabetes, and he's really advocating that for the return to, of home economics <coughs> or something like that to high school because really a lot of people, if nutritionists in the room I think would agree that people just don't know how to cook anymore and you can't deal with local food if you don't know how to cook and you can't um, you know provide healthy food for your family a lot of things are kind of boiling down when it there's changing science when it comes to fat and this could be a whole another lecture but we're moving more towards more fat in the diet but better quality but the only way you really know that is if you really know the source or if you cook it yourself. So there's a lot that's moving in the direction that we would do a lot better if we had greater control over the food that we eat in terms of cooking or the preparation. These are just some more of the questions in terms of attitudes about production. Again, whether farming um, does good things for the environment or not. Will you, we use this term neophobia that's been developed by some researchers who look at eating habits among children. And this is, a, is you, any of you who have children or remember your childhood will know that you, um, there, you know, if you don't know a vegetable, you're not likely to want to try it. We actually find this a problem in some of our obesity studies. If we have parents and kids together and we do a taste testing, the parents often will say to the kid, oh, you don't like that. <laughs> and uh, if we didn't have the parents in the room, the kids might be willing to try it. So um, I think there's growing evidence that kids, I think I mentioned earlier, who grow food and prepare it themselves actually um, are willing to, um, or, or actually enjoy it and willing to try things. So this is just some of the kind of psychometrics going along with that. So we have some reasonable scales on these areas, and we're happy to share those if anybody wants to measure this kind of stuff in your work. Um, this is a conceptual framework that I think I'll just kind of buzz through in terms of um, what we're trying to get at with this faith farming in the future. Ultimately, we're trying to get at reducing, um, let's see, I can move, right? I'm not wired to anything. <laughs> um, reducing health disparities, improving economic well-being. We know that we're not going to change that in our one little study, but that's what we're kind of aiming for. And then going all the way back to the inputs in terms of um, developing these community assessments, some entrepreneurial development ideas. Um, there's a group called, yes, a group of youth called Youth Empowerment Solutions, and we have them come out and do some training with the kids. So it's a long process, lots of factors going on with all of that. Um, I'm going to mention a few kind of miscellaneous education and policy things that we have going on related to local food systems. Um, for those of you interested in this area, a good resource to know about is CEFS, which is the um, Center for Environmental Farm Systems. That's in, um, it's an outgrowth of NC State, the, our land grant institution, and it's out in a rural area, and they, they do a lot of agricultural um, studies related to organic farming and alternative hog farm production, that kind of thing. Nancy Creamer is the director of that, and 
I told the story earlier, we kind of found each other in an interesting way. Um, I was at a meeting in Washington, sat next to a guy from Michigan State who happens to do local food stuff, and he said, do you know Nancy Creamer? And I said, no. He said, well, I'll introduce you. <laughs> so guy from Michigan in Washington introduced me to somebody who's right down the road in Raleigh. <laughs> but we've been collaborating ever since. So she brings the ag horticulture side, and I bring the nutrition side, and it's kind of a nice blend. And she was kind of the instigator behind this. It was like a one and a half, two year effort of um, doing a whole assessment and guide uh, to building North Carolina's sustainable local food economy. And I chaired a section on the kind of health side of this. So it's kind of a whole uh, guide. And if you are interested, if you Google CEFs, you'll find this publication, the whole thing there. Um, We've been talking about various sources of, of funding. I thought this was kind of an interesting recent one. Our, our Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, the foundation has decided to fund um, a garden in every county, in all 100 counties. So I, I don't know much about the details. This was just announced. But sometimes you find funding in interesting places, something to keep in mind. And then we're working with our Department of Health Behavior and Health Education. Students do a year-long capstone project. and community partners and academic partners who work with communities can make a pitch for um, trying to get students on board. It's kind of competitive. When I did this one time, I got up and said I was going to do some trash talking about my academic colleagues, but I didn't do it. <laughs> the, uh, but we do. We were lucky to get a group of students um, who are going to work with us around this garden that I mentioned, the campus community garden. Um, and they're going to look at land use policies um, related to both campus and the broader community, so to look at whether or not people who live in apartment complexes, other kinds of community areas, could um, develop some gardens so that it's not just a matter of keeping, you know, we're, we can only do so much with one garden, but if it's the old kind of teach somebody to fish and they can feed themselves. So that's what we're moving towards. Now, I've learned that you have just had a really interesting policy just passed. In fact, can I call on you to mention that to people who may not know about it for here? Yeah. Um, the city of Columbia has um, made available to anyone who wants to start a community garden uh, to use any basic land that the city might have that, that has water in it. They can access that water. Uh, the second part of that is the city has established nine different locations where they are leasing. Uh, the city is building raised beds and leasing them for $20 a year um, to uh, anyone who's interested in, in gardening at that place and also your water is included. So this is a really big and step that, to... Oh, that's just under the backyard path, too. I oh, yes. <laughs> uh, that was, I guess, last year, was it? There was one that was last year. We got chickens in the, in the backyard. Uh, anywhere in the city? Anywhere no. in the city, up to four hens. Five hens. It's been a huge debate in a lot of communities in North Carolina. Anybody so. who wants to work on sustainable schools projects, <laughs> anybody else want to put in a plug for your organization? <laughs> no, that's okay. That's good. Um, we also have at the state level the Division of Public Health um, has kind of a, a community garden um, effort where they try to coordinate efforts around the state. I can share that with you all as well. And in a policy area that we've been working on lately is this kind of intriguing thing that um, schools are becoming very worried about serving um, food served in school gardens in the school cafeteria. This sounds a little strange, but they will allow them to be served in um, taste testing in classrooms doesn't seem to be a concern, um, which raises the question of what 
if people are really worried about food safety or, or what I think it really is, is liability, that there's concern about that. And, um, you know, if you really think this through and think about all the bad things our food can do to us long term in terms of chronic diseases and then to be worried about serving school garden food in the cafeteria, it's kind of crazy. Um, but so we've been trying to explore that. We looked at a bunch of other states, and a lot of states are okay with this. They do allow that to happen, although I'm understanding not in South Carolina either. Also, um, salad bars, which are another good way to get fruits and vegetables in kids. We're finding that our local health inspectors are being extremely strict about that and are closing a lot of those down. Whereas we talk to the higher level people and they say, well, they really are over-interpreting the law. So, so food safety is, of course, a big thing. You know, there have been a lot of big, scary outbreaks, and I think we maybe have gone overboard um, on clamping things down. There's a lot of action going on for local farms as well. There's something called GAP certification, good agricultural practices, which is now being required by many um, consumers of farm produce. Um, problem is that um, it's very difficult for small farmers to meet those requirements because you have to certify each crop separately. So if you have a thousand um, acres of corn, um, you pay one price for that. If you have 26 different vegetables on two acres, you have to pay a lot more. So there's a lot of things that just could benefit from policy. These are just more stuff about what other states are doing. Some of the things that um, what we need to do is just develop some kind of concrete guidelines that people can use, make sure the soil's good, the water's good, that there's a caution about using any chemicals, and good kind of hygiene. This is basically simplifying this is that there, there's nothing really being mandated either from Congress or the USDA to say that we shouldn't be doing this. In fact, there are many programs encouraging the consumption of um, food from school gardens. So a number of places have food safety protocols, and we've just written a grant proposal to try to um, maybe get something that could be nationally accepted as a way to uh, help people find sort of a middle ground between shutting this down completely but using safe practices. So this is just some things going on in North Carolina where there's kind of a mix. But you see um, someone here said... Well, they're talking about how they're finding the kids are more inclined to eat fruits and vegetables if they can grow them, so there's a reason to do that. Here's some of our partners. Um, just thought I'd just end with a few kind of fun things with local food. Um, here's the list here that I'll run through. We used Photo Voice in middle school to see what kids thought about their food environment. Um, we asked them to capture some ideas, and they came up with some really interesting thoughts about both their titles and comments. Um, if it's becoming addictive, then we need to get rid of it. We weren't really asking them to be advocates, but they really turned out. This is a pretty impressive <laughs> picture that would kind of adverse therapy for French fries. Um, we all have the chance to live, be, and eat healthy, let go of the junk food, and do something right for you. These are middle schoolers. Now, whether or not they'd really follow their own advice, I don't know. Um, and here they caught, this is actually one of our teacher allies, but I think she was going along with them. And so <laughs> said, she's a bad influence, but I can't tell her because she's my teacher. Um, school lunch, the term disgusting comes up a lot. This was actually considered better, but you know, that's kind of a key word for middle schoolers. Um, and then we use some of this um, to try to develop um, kind of advocacy uh, things for legislators because North Carolina, I don't know about South Carolina, but we don't subsidize school lunch program at all. So, and the child nutrition program is very difficult to make it economically and serve anything 
healthy. And if you had to make money off of selling food to children, would you serve broccoli or would you serve ice cream? <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way the system works. So we have a long way to go there. Um, I, with my three boys, they did a lot of sports, so I um, ran unopposed three years and became the Booster Club president. <laughs> so, um, this is one of the first emails I got about this. If you just say, hey, Alice, this is a good fundraising opportunity. If you skip down to here, she can't see the very end, says cookies, popcorn, and soda are, are all big sellers, too. But they made $3,000 for the band. This is what came to mind immediately was this. On the bright side, vending machine profits go toward oversized uniforms for the marching band. <laughs> Sad but true. Um, but parents are really frustrated by the fact that they try not to keep cookies and candy in the house and the kids come home and sell it. And we all have too much um, wrapping paper by now, too, I think. <laughs> so I decided I'd try to learn something from the business school. So I took a launching the venture course and got some um, colleagues to and students to work with me. So we came up with an idea. And I actually have a full business plan if anybody wants to do this. I haven't had time to implement it, which is what we call healthier fundraisers. And as an alternative to the current fundraising website, um, cookie dough is a big one. Best profit, great product, parents and kids love it. It shows you how many tons of cookie dough you can sell and make a lot of money. This is the candy lady, and then this is the M&M. So our idea was just to sell either healthy or health-neutral products, like maybe reusable grocery bags, CFL light bulbs, and then connect those with the school so they could do fundraising that didn't require selling junk. So, so if you want to open this company. I'll give you my business plan. <laughs> this was our kind of elevator pitch. And then another thing that we've worked on in the Booster Club arena is um, raising money for scoreboards for a new school. I tried to convince either Coke or Pepsi to put a picture of their water. I can never keep track of which Dasani or um, you know all the scoreboards have Coca-Cola on and I thought well if we could just get a picture of water but they'd never return my phone call. <laughs> um, so with middle school, you have to deal with middle school cool. That's my middle son in the middle there with the baseball glove looking very cool. He's 17, 19 now, so it's a while ago. So we wanted to have a um, fundraiser where we would do dodgeball tournaments. The kids all love that, but the, we were told the dodgeball is not socially acceptable, that it's too violent, even with a Nerf ball. So we couldn't do that. So, um, so we had these alternative games where the um, like scooter basketball where the teachers would play against the kids and they'd all be on these little scooters. And we, you guys probably don't know Eric Montross, but he um, was one of our championship um, basketball players. He was the center from, what it says the year there, I can't remember, 94. Anyway, he's the color commentator now for the team. And we decided to do some trash talking. The principal was skeptical about this from the beginning, but when I told her we were going to do trash talking, she was really worried. But I got the, um, the math teacher is actually a Duke graduate, so I told him if anybody can do trash talking, he should be able to do it. So he came up with this great one. Um, the students are going down like the value of a fraction as the denominator increases. <laughs> <laughs> can you see uh, LeBron James yelling that at someone else as he runs across? But then the students got into it too. Um, you think you're all that in a cafeteria lunch. That's the ultimate insult. So we started in 2006. These are just some examples. And we ended up, um, the local food piece of this is that we started 
trying to focus on local food for the pizza dinner that we served afterwards. One good thing about this is it got me into the cafeteria of the schools. Um, I brought a bunch of my students with me, and we, we saw exactly how limited the kitchens really are um, <laughs> in the schools and what they have to face in terms of preparation. It, we could barely find a knife to cut up fruits and vegetables. So. Um, and then a spinoff this year, this is kind of <laughs> crazy. I happen to be Jewish and a nutritionist, and um, one of our farmers who um, um, has always been very generous with the bratwurst for the pizza, it turned out his farm, his barn burned down this year, and then he, one of his main restaurants canceled their contract right after he slaughtered a big hog, like a thousand pound hog, he told me, um, because they couldn't afford local food anymore. So he was left with all this bratwurst. So I said, okay, well, I'll try to help you sell it. <laughs> so, so suddenly, so I send out these messages, you know, Jewish nutritionist marketing um, bratwurst, and that was such, <laughs> so now I can't get out of the business. Um, <laughs> every time I tell that story, people say, oh, well, I'll take some. So every time I go to the farmer's market, I load up, and then I went to one of my son's baseball games the other day and, you know, distributed a bunch of the bratwurst. So he does his pigs very differently from Smithfield. I just visited his farm on the tour, and uh, so, and, but to, assuage my nutritionist soul, I had to come up with a good use of the bratwurst. Um, so I actually use this almost every um, Saturday now from, for breakfast from the farmer's market of taking um, some of the sausage and a lot of greens. Um, you know, if you buy turnips and beets and things like that, you have all the greens that you need to get rid of before, or you need to separate them from, in order to maintain the integrity of the, of the bulb part. So we just cook that up with a little bit of sausage and then fry an egg and put it on top and it's really good. And um, it's really power packed with nutrition in terms of all the greens. You know, they have about the most you'll get. So we titled this greens, eggs, and ham sausage, whatever. So, um, and then just one more thing, looking for every opportunity to explore food systems and bragging about my children a little bit. Uh, my youngest son went on a cross country bike trip last summer. They went from Maryland to Anacortes near Seattle. And this is my son on the right, but the guy on the left was a health policy and management student who wanted to do an internship with me. He didn't want to just file papers and he kind of wanted to go on this bike trip. So we figured out a way that he could go and do his project. There he is holding an apple and a, I noticed my son has a basketball in the back. They actually carried a basketball with them. So they'd ride for 70 miles and then play basketball. <laughs> go figure. Um, but what the student did was he, um, did an assessment of corner stores along the way in the rural areas. That's where they get most of their food when they're biking, which is not a great source. But um, so he had, did this little corner store assessment where, like in this particular one, there were two boxes of Rice Krispies, um, all types of milks except for skim, no baked chips. We use that as kind of a, a test and no fruits or vegetables available. So he did kind of an assessment of sort of the food desert type thing. Then he also looked at bikeability, where he took pictures of the road conditions and rated those. So turned into kind of a neat policy-related project, um, got credit for. And then I will end on a creative marketing strategy to link obesity prevention with local food systems. And I credit this to my aunt, who lives with us, who has the coolest birthday ever, 11, 12, 13. <laughs> so, so if you do the math, she'll be 98 this year. And um, she was looking around the um, kitchen one day and she said, Alice, I didn't know they had low calorie honey. And I said, no, I don't usually buy stuff like that. <laughs> and so I looked and it was um, local honey. So 
if we can market all local products as being low calorie, then maybe we'll <laughs> be able to make it. So. so, and one little thing, I, um, does anybody know who this is or what this is? School bus. And who is the teacher? Ms. Frizzle, right? I actually did this. Our chancellor is very entrepreneurial. He's written a new book on um, entrepreneurship, and I was—I do a lot with that social entrepreneurship. And I was asked to give a talk right after his book was released, and he was sitting in the front row, and I mentioned the magic school bus. I didn't have slides that time, but I asked the same question: Does anybody know about the magic school bus, and who's the teacher? And he, he was sitting in the front row, and he goes, "Miss Frizzle." <laughs> so, it was like a little kid in school. He was the first person to answer, so I was pleased. Well, she has a favorite saying. Does anybody know this? This is the real test. You get a prize if you know what, what one of her favorite sayings is. It's take chances, make mistakes, get messy. And I think this is kind of a good, good guideline for life and local food system <laughs> in general. If you have to get messy. Well, dirt's kind of messy. so. Um, <laughs> but um, it is an area where we have to kind of push ourselves beyond the limits a little bit and develop new partnerships and um, really kind of take it to another level. So I left only a few minutes for questions, but I'm happy to stay around a little bit too. Anybody? Or want to add commentary about what's going on here? Or I think we tend mm. to, to think in very limited sorts of ways about things. And, and one mm -hmm. idea that comes to mind, and Tom Hurley was in the other corner over there, you know, sort of turned me on to the idea of edible landscapes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea that the kid is in the pool and by the pool are cherry tomatoes and the kid also likes basil because she came, became addicted in utero to this stuff <laughs> really uh -huh. works great. So, I mean, this kid, in the first years we had the, the garden by the pool mixed in with the flowers and she was just picking the cherry tomatoes. They were gone. And I, my immediate reaction mm -hmm. was I was a little... And I wasn't real happy about that. And then I realized, oh, this is actually a good thing, James. You mm -hmm. can plant more cherry tomatoes. So mm -hmm. the idea that you could do it at home, that you don't have to go away, that the kid actually would prefer that to other things. You can't have sharp objects in the pool anyway. And cherry tomatoes yeah, are anything but sharp. Right. So that way of thinking about things, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. And you can do it on a very small scale. It doesn't require a lot. Do you want to talk about the pizza gardens that you were mentioning? Oh, I think yeah. the elementary school was a wonderful imagination cap uh, captivation technique to, to do a circular, circular garden in pizza slice and plant your tomatoes and your basil and, and, and then make the pizza from the garden. I mean, it's just a wonderful way to capture. But every, just going back to your edible uh, landscape, which is a real passion of mine, um, every household in South Carolina 100 years ago had fruit trees blueberry bushes, mm -hmm. all part of the landscape, mm -hmm. fruit trees. Um, so it's, I really applaud you for that. That's, that's a, a major, uh, if we could get even companies to plant fruit trees and blueberry bushes instead of um, holly bushes around their buildings, then people could just go and pick them at lunch. We just turned one of our garden plots down by the Discovery Building into a garden. So that's, and we're going to start encroaching into the rest of it once we know <laughs> the dirt is of, of decent pedigree. So yeah, it's that's probably wise to text the soil. Is, is, a, is a very easy way to build the soil in existing beds around buildings where you put down wet newspaper, you put down uh, organic matter, and you just keep layering What about the ink in the paper? No, it's, that's, it's all, all in, all, in it's all paper. It's all vegetable. It's now vegetable dye. Right. It's not a problem anymore. And landscaping is going to help you with this talk, too. 
Paul and uh, Kevin, all those guys are really investing in the public is an investment. While you've got the floor, why don't you mention the Square Foot Garden? Company. Square Foot Garden is a uh, race day garden uh, method that uh, within a four by four box, you can grow up to 16 different types of vegetables, fruits, and herbs all in one box. It takes up less space. You don't have to worry about the soil that, uh, that you have. You create the soil out of three ingredients, resin compost, vermiculite, and peat moss. You can grow vegetables, herbs, and fruit all year long and have it right outside your door with the flowers and with the herbs and incorporate all those edible flowers. There's about 55 different types of edible flowers that we can eat. So it's, mm -hmm. it's an ongoing thing. As a matter of fact, the CEO and uh, the board of directors will be here next weekend at the Green Quad to do a three-day symposium. And so uh, any of you are welcome to attend. It's going to be a teacher certification. And then on Saturday, we'll do a, um, a probably right now it looks like two, we're going to have to do two classes because of the interest we've already gotten mm. from. Uh, we'll do a 9 to 10.30 class and then probably a 2 to 3.30 class. We're going to try to get that second one in. So this is so probably as close you can, as you can come to foolproof gardening, which is good as to have. As close as to walk with, uh, with the lasagna gardening, it's, it's very similar. That and straw bale gardening, where you take a, a mm. straw bale, oh, yeah. water it, treat it with a little bit of lime, let it set for two weeks, and then cut out about six inches of the top of the bale, and put your compost in there, and you can plant anything in there as well. And that's, that's a little harder to see. So for the reluctant gardener, trying something small that gives good success is a good way to start. And then, because it's very satisfying, just I have a little teeny tiny garden, but it makes me so happy when I can harvest something from it. And I think that it's, it kind of grows on you. Huh. <laughs> Didn't really mean to say that. Any other kind of tips for people? What you yeah. said about the, the nutrient issue, right. I'm really concerned about nutrient you know, so for example, if you don't really amend the soil heavily here, you're growing it on laterite. And what's laterite? I mean, ferric oxide and aluminum hydroxide. I mean, there's no micronutrients in that. You know, so what? It, so, you know, if, if you're just doing mechanized agriculture, it mm. isn't just the vitamin C. It's, mm -hmm. you know, was there selenium there to start with? Did it get washed out? And I think there's some really interesting work out of the mm -hmm. UK that's shown a lot of the modern vegetables fall very short in, in terms of micronutrient concentrations compared to what's in the food databases, for mm -hmm. example, which were done from, you know, basically from the late 1940s through till we ran out of money to do it when George W. The, you know, was president. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think it's a bigger mm -hmm. problem than, mm -hmm. than you were. Now if you eat breakfast cereal, you cover a lot of your nutrients. Because yeah. <laughs> it's fortified. Yeah, you fortify the yeah. But that could happen in a local place as well if you're not attending. Yeah, depending yeah. on how you're Unless you're adding compost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. You could end on that note. Compost is the key. <laughs> <laughs>